Good morning, church. It is uh, really good to be with you today. I love my church family. I love gathering with God's people on Sunday morning, and I, I hope uh, you are glad to be here as well. Uh, some years ago, when I was working on the car, um, you know, I'm leaning over the hood in the engine compartment. I don't even remember what I was doing, of course, but I'm, I'm working on the car, and I had this experience that some of you might uh, connect with. I dropped a bolt, and so you immediately look under the car. Is it there? No, it didn't go through. And somewhere in this mix mash of of wires and bolts and parts and belts and all the stuff that's on a new car. I mean, it's just, it's just in there somewhere. And I need this thing. Like, it seems like I need it to survive, to live, like I'm going to die if I don't find this bolt. So I get my headlamp on, you know, even though it's the middle of the day. So I get like 17 million lumens of light onto the engine compartment and I'm searching and searching and searching uh, for this bolt. I eventually uh, spot the bolt. The bolt is in a place that no human that I could think of initially could reach. And I begin to think of these tools they sell. You know, these like little flexy, flexy little Jimmy Mabobber things that have a magnet on the end. And I'm dreaming and fantasizing of one of these things, which I don't have. But I do have a child with a, with a skinny arm at this point. And I'm thinking, I wonder if I get my son, if he could reach down in there and get this thing. And he did. And he got it. And we had our moment of victory. We might call that um, from, this was my son Mark, from his perspective, we might call that a, I got this moment. Um, I, I, I got this. And, and Mark, um, he had it. He, he solved the problem. His skinny arm was skinny enough to get into this, this place and, and, and get the bolt. And there are times in life where you or I might have um, the resources or the, the, the small diameter of an arm or, or whatever it is, uh, and, and, and we have that sense, um, I got this, and, we, and we, we solve the problem. Today's sermon is about really the opposite of that. We're going to see in today's text that Saul... King Saul, the first Saul of, uh, the first king of Israel, he has this moment where he's in trouble and he's desperate and he thinks to himself, I got this. But he doesn't. There are times in life when we think, apart from God, or even worse, in blatant disobedience to God, I can solve this situation. I have the resources in my own flesh, in my own strength. It might be going against the Word of God or the Spirit of God or what God has called me to, but I, in my own strength, can solve this. 
Saul has one of these moments in today's passage. And these moments where we think we have it and we don't can be relationally destructive in our lives when we think, I can solve this situation, but we're going to be going against God's will. Uh, They can be spiritually destructive. They can have massive consequences, multi-generational consequences, today's passage even eternal consequences. So the first king of Israel, King Saul, has an I got this moment, but it is not a good one. It's one where the spirit of the world, the spirit of the flesh, the spirit of I can do this uh, takes over. So let's jump into today's passage, and uh, hopefully you have your Bibles or your devices open, and we're going to get to this moment in just a a few verses. We'll work our way there a verse at a time, but let's begin taking a look at verse 1. 1 Samuel 13 and verse 1. My translation says, Saul was 30 years old when he became king, and he reigned over Israel 42 years. Now, your translation very likely, says something different than that unless you have the NIV, which I just put on the screen. And I don't want to spend a lot of time on this, but I, I want to address this because hopefully you have your Bibles open and you, you listen to the passage read and it said something different, the version that was English version that was read then. And we have this version. If we look at the King James Version, it says, Saul reigned one year and when he had reigned two years over Israel is how verse one begins going to show you one other version, and this is the only time of any English version I know of that, that has done this in a translation, and I have to commend them for doing it. This is an older translation, the Revised Standard Version. And they put Saul was dot, 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 years old when he began to reign, and he reigned and dot, 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 in two years over Israel. Now, I didn't research this comprehensively, but I don't think there's any other English translation in any other passage of the Old Testament in any verse that that does this. And so what they're doing is this. Let me just explain it to you. This isn't a main thing. This isn't a central part of the passage, but it's here. And so let's, let's, let's talk about what's going on here. Our text of the Old Testament is incredibly accurate and reliable, the way it has been transmitted and copied over the centuries and even over the thousands of years. But there are a few problems in the transmission of that text. There are some things where we're not sure what the original said. And in all of the verses of the Hebrew Bible of the Old Testament, this one may be very near the top of the list that we're just not sure what those numbers are in the original Hebrew manuscript. And so you'll see English translations doing a whole variety of things and then having footnotes saying, you know, we might or might not have it. But the RSV, they just said, hey, we're not totally, absolutely sure about the numbers here and they put dot, dot, dot. So I don't know if you dislike that or like that. I kind of like that. It's just honesty. And so if this is kind of a new idea for you, let me just say that our Bibles are incredibly accurate and reliable. But to have full disclosure and to be honest and transparent, there are a few places where, where we're not sure actually what the original said. And those few places are places that 
that um, don't touch major doctrines, don't have to deal with something that's um, a main thing or a, a plain thing. I'm fighting with the connectivity here. So, um, yeah, I have this as a backup. So let me just stop trying to preach to you and fight with a, a device. Does anyone have a sledgehammer? Um, you ever feel that way? I'm not going to bust it up, but how about if I just drop it there? You just drop it like that. All right. It's got a really good case on it, so I'm feeling better now about preaching. Let's see if I can get this one going. It's not hooked up? <laughs> all right. Well, I have the Bible, and that's all we really need. So we'll probably get this connected here in just a moment. Let's come back to our text. Hopefully, if you have a device, you can read it. And if you have your Bible, it's right there. And we'll look at verses 2 through 10. So that's the, the confusion on verse 1. Are you all with me on verse 1? Okay. Let's, uh, let's go on and look at verses um, 2 through 10. All right. You're not supposed to see that yet. Okay, here we go. So verse 2, now we're getting into the main thing here in, in these next few verses. So Saul chose 3,000 men um, from Israel. And this is, he's, he's, he's doing the draft, if you will. He's, he's calling for a standing army, if you get that. That's what, that's what he's doing here. So 3,000 men from Israel, 2,000 were with him at Michmash and in the hill country of Bethel. And 1,000 were with Jonathan, first mention of Jonathan in the Bible here, Saul's son, at Gibeah in Benjamin. The rest of the men he sent back to their homes. So here's where the battle begins. Verse 3, Jonathan attacked the Philistine outpost at Geba, and the Philistines heard about it. Then Saul had the trumpet blown throughout the land and said, let the Hebrews hear. So all Israel heard the news. Saul has attacked the Philistine outpost, and now Israel has become a stench to the Philistines. And the people were summoned to join Saul at Gilgal. The Philistines assembled to fight Israel with 3,000 chariots. They each have two drivers, so you have 6,000 charioteers and soldiers as numerous as the sand on the seashore. So this is hyperbole for they're about to go to war with a superpower who should slaughter them, should just wipe them out. They don't have a chance, uh, just objectively, against this superpower. So back to the text here, verse 5. They went up and camped at Michmash, east of Beth-Avon. When the men of Israel saw that their situation was critical and that their army was hard-pressed, they hid in caves and thickets among the rocks and in pits and cisterns. Some Hebrews even crossed the Jordan to the land of Gad and Gilead. Let me just pause here for a moment. I mean, I think you get this, right? This is not what you want your army to do. Um, we are outnumbered. Uh, they are a superpower. So they have uh, weaponry and defense contractors that we don't have. They, their weaponry involved uh, not just wooden chariots, what most people had, but their wooden chariots were armed with iron, iron brackets and iron strengthening points at points of vulnerability. This is something that others didn't have, that the Philistines had, and so they're greatly feared. And so 
the soldiers are hiding. <laughs> and we're told the details of how they're hiding. Some of them have run away. Some of them are in pits and in cisterns. So this is a crisis for a commander-in-chief. So how does he deal with this? Back to our text here. Verse, we're in the middle of verse 7. Saul remained at Gilgal, and all the troops with him were quaking with fear. He waited seven days, the time set by Samuel. But Samuel did not come to Gilgal, and Saul's men began to scatter. So the few that aren't hiding in pits are now scattering. Verse 9. So he said, bring me the burnt offering and the fellowship offerings. And Saul offered up the burnt offering just as he finished. And I've got this circled here. So the, the author, we don't know who the author of 1 Samuel is for certain, but the author says, he, he's drawing our attention to the timing here. Just as he finished making the offering, Samuel arrived and Saul went out to greet him. Now this slide. So uh, one commentator writes this. He says, the narrator that is, the writer of 1 Samuel, wants the reader to infer that Samuel was, in fact, close by, waiting to catch Saul and then to reprove him, as Samuel immediately does. Now that's probably what, what happened here, probably what is going on, but more broadly and more certainly, the reader of this text is supposed to go, this is incredible timing. Saul, as we're going to see in a moment, had been instructed to wait for Samuel and to wait seven days until he comes and Samuel was going to do these offerings. And Samuel, the judge and the prophet, the spiritual leader, the senior man on the scene, was going to take the lead. Wait for me is what he's been instructed. But he didn't. And so just as he finishes uh, this in verse, uh, verse 9, he, he, he finished this, finishes this, and, and, and just as he finishes the first offering, he's like in the midst of the offering, he shows up. And then look at verse 11. Samuel shows up on the scene. What have you done? Asked Samuel. Uh, any mother knows the tone here. Any father knows the tone here. Any uh, boss who has a responsibility of employees knows the tone here. Any commander of an army or the leader of a group knows. What have you done? He shows up just as he no longer, he can't wait any longer. And the way I read this text, he's supposed to wait seven days and it's not been eight days yet. So, so he hasn't waited enough minutes or enough hours. In Saul's perspective, he's not coming. But he is coming. He's just coming a few minutes or maybe a few hours later than Saul expected. So he shows up and Samuel shows up right at this moment and says, what have you done? Here's Saul's response. When I saw that the men were scattering and that you did not come at the set time and that the Philistines were assembling at Michmash, I thought, I thought, that's key here, the I thought, now the Philistines will come down against me at Gilgal and I have not sought the Lord's favor. So I felt compelled to offer the burnt 
offering. This is Saul's I got this moment. He is saying, I got this. And from the following verses, it is really clear that he has gone against Samuel and he has gone against the word of the Lord. This is his I got this moment when he doesn't actually have this. The king is simply shifting blame to others in the verses that I just read in 11 and 12. He's trying to justify and explain what he is doing. Look at Samuel's response in verses 13 and 14. You acted foolishly. You have not kept the command the Lord your God gave you. If you had, he would have established your kingdom over Israel for all time. So this is a big consequence. As we read this text in the year 2022, looking back on 2,000 years of church history, we know that one of the titles of our Lord is the son of, not the son of Saul, but the son of David. Why don't we know the Messiah as the son of Saul? 1 Samuel 13 is the answer to that question. Verse 13 and 14. He acted foolishly. He, he did not listen to the commandment the Lord the, your God gave you. Yahweh your God gave you. Verse 14. Now your kingdom will not endure. The Lord has sought out a man after his own heart and appointed him leader of his people because you have not kept the Lord's command. So let's pause here and talk about this. This is the main thing in, this, in today's passage. Now, if we just look at these facts, if you're like me, the first response of this is, really, this seems like a severe response. Um, you're not gonna, your kingdom isn't going to be like David's kingdom. You're, you, th- th- this, I mean, what, what did he do here? He hasn't murdered, he hasn't raped, he hasn't stolen. He, he's offering sacrifices because he thinks Samuel's not coming. So that would be a natural way to respond to this text, but it is not the right way to respond to this text. And the reason it's not the right way to respond to this text is because the text is really clear that Saul has disobeyed the clear commandment of God that came to him. And he has chosen to to say, I got this, and, I, and I'm going to do it the way that I want to do it because I'm in a desperate situation. And that is a very dangerous place to be. And that is really the main thing that God wants to hit you and me and our hearts with today. Because there are times in life where we're faced with a situation where I have the resources, I might be able to do this or I might to do that, but to do this or to do that would be to go against the will of God or against Scripture, and that we can never do. And that is what Saul has done here. One commentator, he explains it this way. He says, Saul's sin was not 
that as king he was forbidden by God's law to sacrifice burnt offerings and fellowship offerings under any and all circumstances. That wasn't the problem. How do we know that? Later, David and Solomon made the same kinds of offerings, and there is no hint of divine rebuke in either case. Saul sinned because he disobeyed God's word through the prophet, through the judge, through the priest, Samuel, a sin that he would commit again. He has disregarded the prophetic word of God, the word of the Lord that came through Samuel about how long you are to wait and who is supposed to offer this and who is supposed to lead Israel at this time. It's the senior man on the scene, the one who has basically given his retirement speech, but he is still the conduit of God's word. He is the prophet on the scene. And prophecy in the Old Testament is very different, I want to make the argument, than prophecy in the New Testament. And we know this in part for the consequences of false prophets in the Old Testament versus false prophets in the New Testament, or how prophecy is supposed to happen in the New Testament. We don't have time to get into the New Testament prophecy today, but in the Old Testament, look at Deuteronomy 18 with me. A prophet who presumes to speak in my name anything I have not commanded him to say, or a prophet who speaks in the name of other gods, must be put to death. You may say to yourselves, Old Testament Israelite, Um, How can we know when a message has not been spoken by the Lord? If what a prophet proclaims in the name of the Lord does not take place or come true, that is a message the Lord has not spoken. That prophet has spoken presumptuously. Do not be afraid of him. I'm putting these passages on the screen to highlight what Old Testament prophecy was and its importance. And it was to be obeyed as you and I are to obey the word of God. When a prophet speaks the word of the Lord, it is as though it is scripture according to the old covenant. Craig Keener, he goes on, he says, as for executing people, happily that's not our business as the church. If people got executed today for all the things that Old Testament law commanded, we might not have many people left. There were many capital crimes And false prophecy was one of them. And Samuel was not a false prophet. I've put all this on the screen so that you get an understanding. This was like you or I reading the Bible, knowing the Bible says A, and then thinking, I got this, but I got to go against A. I got to go against God's revealed will for my life. So I'm just going to go with the resources I have. I got this, and I'm going to solve the solution, even though I'm violating the word of God and God's will. That is incredibly dangerous, and that is the primary message out of this passage. Matthew Henry, um, we, we could summarize it this way before we get to Matthew Henry. The spirit of, I got this, proves disastrous when a person knowingly and defiantly opposes God's word, God's will, God's way, or in the context of the Old Testament prophet, what the Old Testament prophet has said. And Samuel, thus saith the Lord, said, this is how this is going to go down. You wait for me, this is what's going to happen. And Saul said, no. He said, I've got this. And the consequences are massive. So to us, this seems like a small thing. But it's not a small thing. 
And so we need to think about in our own lives, in our own hearts, what is a small thing? And Matthew Henry helps us with that. It's a little bit of a poetic way that he writes it, but he said, um, by this, he shows, he's talking about this passage, by this, he, God the Holy Spirit, shows that there is no sin little. And why does he write sin little? I think he wants to grab our attention, Matthew Henry, (laughs) instead of saying no little sin. That's the way I would have wrote it. Why did he write sin little? There is no such thing as sin little or a little sin because there is no little God to sin against. God is infinitely holy and powerful. And when he tells you, not through some thing that needs discernment or I'm not sure what he's saying, but when he tells you, Saul, by the prophet Samuel, that this is what you are to do, to wait for him, and then he's going to come on the scene, that is disregarding the word of the Lord. That is no little thing. And that is what we are to take away from today's passage. Another commentator writes this. He says his offense, Saul's offense, may seem trivial to us, but a basic question was involved. Will the new king be subject to the prophet or would he overrule him? The prophet spoke and acted on God's behalf. So Saul had proved by one foolish deed that he did not consider himself bound by God's instructions. Church, we are people who are bound by God's instructions. It is primary, the word of God. It is ultimate. And there are no little ways to disregard it or to disobey it. When a person knowingly and defiantly opposes the word of God, that is not an I got this moment. That is a moment of tragedy and a a moment of, of tremendous regret in this passage for Saul. Let's go back and just finish up the text here. I made it through uh, verse 14. We have one verse left, verse 15. This is very telling. So Samuel is the godly, humble, spiritual leader on the scene. Samuel, he's given his retirement speech, but he is still working and prophesying and leading spiritually. And Samuel, in verse 15, leaves Gilgal and went up to Gibeah and Benjamin. And Saul counted the men who were with him. They numbered about 600. He's about to go against a superpower with 600 men and with the spiritual leader now walking away because he has made a decision, the king, to not follow the word of the Lord, but to follow his own ideas and his own understanding and his own plans, which are actually opposite, contrary, and disobedient to the Word of God. So a couple more points I want to make connecting this theme and this text with, with other texts. Uh, so we're, we're done with 1 Samuel 13, and I want to go to a very common passage in just a moment that most of us, many of us know by heart, Proverbs 3, 5, and 6. Before we look at it on the screen, I remind you what's going on in the early chapters of Proverbs. 
Proverbs are not just these truths that just drop down randomly. Some liberal scholars will say, yeah, these are just random things that some editor collected and, and put them all together. That's not what the book of Proverbs is, especially in the early chapters. We, we, ha- we know the author. He's a father, Solomon, and he's writing to give wisdom to his sons, to his young sons. So I have in my mind like a, a 12-year-old maybe. Don't know how old his sons were as he's writing that, but that, that's just in my mind. He's wanting to impart crucial wisdom to young boys as they're growing up. That wisdom is for all of us, whether we're young or old, male or female, boys or girls, men or women. Proverbs are for all of us, but it's good to understand this historical context. So let's look at that, at this, um, this well-known proverb. What I'm saying, what we're looking at in this proverb, uh, the second point is this, that the spirit of, I got this, it proves disastrous. That's what this text is about today. I, I don't choose what my sermon's about. The text chooses what my sermon's about. This sermon is about when your life or my life or Saul's life is disastrous, when he says, I got this, and he goes against the word of the Lord. So the spirit of I got this proves disastrous when a person leans on his own or her own non-Bible-saturated understanding. And this is what is trying to be communicated in part by Solomon to his sons and by God the Holy Spirit to the church today in Proverbs 3, 5, and 6. Trust in the Lord with all your heart and lean not on your own understanding, Saul. Lean not on your own understanding, Mike. In all your ways acknowledge him, and he will make your path straight. I've gone to this text because of the theme that's highlighted here. Lean not on your own understanding. That is the same theme that is central here in 1 Samuel 13. And this is so completely different from the message of our world and our culture today. If you are listening to a motivational speech at one of our high schools or secular universities, you can imagine what that speech is going to entail. That you are your own person. You can be whatever you want to be. You can do whatever you want to do. You have everything you need. You're special. Now, like all dangerous truths, there's some truth within that. But there's massive danger in that. And that is that we, all of us, are born fools. We're born fools. So Solomon, under inspiration of the Spirit, is wanting his boys to learn That they're fools. And if you think you're going to get through it, through life, through this problem, by leaning on your own understanding that you've got everything you need, you are desperately lost. So we've got to empty our minds of this false and fleshly and worldly understanding of, of, of how to live. And we have to fill our minds. This is the opposite of like, some people are like, well, do you, are you for transcendental, what is it called, transcendental meditation? What are you into, you into meditation or yoga or these things? 
Well, if it's about emptying your mind uh, to, to like get, like, I, I don't know, what, what, what does that even mean, to empty your mind? Like, we want to empty our minds to fill it with biblical truth. So we're not, we're not about finding some spot of nirvana or getting our, our, ourselves empty. We want to lean not on our own understanding so that we can get God's understanding into us. And then, then we have what it takes to live life and to, to know how to make decisions. Waltke writes this on Proverbs 3, 5, and 6. He says, faith in God's promises and renouncing confidence in oneself are unnatural. You want to talk about a message that you're not going to hear in a motivational speech at one of our universities or high schools is that you need to renounce confidence in yourself. Well, how do I get confidence then? Isn't confidence good? It is. That confidence comes from the fear of the Lord. And the truths of his word filling your life. Now I know how to live. I don't need to be afraid of anything. I have reverence and awe for the Lord Jesus Christ, but I don't need to be afraid about anything. How do I get to a place like that? By renouncing confidence in oneself. It's unnatural to do that. This is God's message to us today from 1 Samuel chapter 13, to not lean on our own understanding. And so in our lives, when we say, I got this, we need to make sure, sometimes that's a good thing when you have a small diameter arm and you're getting a bolt. Mark, Mark, Mark had that. That was a good thing. But there's sometimes where we say, I got this, like Saul. And we ought not to use the resources that we have to do that because we are going against the Lord. So many people, I mean, this is the part where preaching gets hard. So many people, as I think about my ministry over the years, often spiritual leaders, people in position of leadership like Saul, who had some fanciful idea that just that, that God has this for me, but just on another basic level, like I, I'm, I'm thinking of, I don't even want to talk about what I'm thinking about right now, but I'm, I'm thinking of someone who seems so spiritual, and so I'm going to go in this direction that seems, that seems good on one sense, like what Saul's doing here seems good, but guess what? It's going against the word of the Lord. So you might think, and something might feel right, this might feel so good, and it looks good, and everyone's applauding it. But if it goes against the word of God, it's not. It's not. Last text I want to look at today, and we'll finish up. Uh, the last battle between the flesh and the spirit, Galatians 5, the battle between the spirit of the world and the spirit of God, 1 Corinthians 12. That's essentially what we have going on in Saul's life in this moment, this battle. Is he going to be patient and wait and follow what God had clearly communicated, or is he going to go ahead with his own plan? He went ahead with his own plan. He acted foolishly. The person who, um, who, who said, I got this in the most tragic and, and, and worst way in the scriptures, of course, is Judas. 
who spent three years with our Lord. Obviously, he believed in him. He was hanging out with him. He saw him do these miracles. He saw him raise the dead. He saw him feed the 5,000. But Judas also had an I got this moment. And he came up with another plan for his life. The spirit of I got this proves disastrous when a person unequivocally puts self ahead of Christ. And that's what Judas does. You know the story. Let's look at part of it in Matthew 27, the end part. When Judas, who had betrayed him, saw that Jesus was condemned, he was seized with remorse and returned the 30 silver coins to the chief priests and the elders. Those of you that maybe some here aren't familiar with the story, he, he, he went after money. This was his plan. A lot of money. I have sinned, Judas said, for I have betrayed innocent blood. What is that to us, they replied. That's your responsibility. So Judas threw the money into the temple and left. Then he went away and he hanged himself. It's a tragic ending to one of the lives of the twelve. And I have to say and make clear that this is not repentance, what we read about here in Matthew 27. Repentance has another side to it, and it's faith. Repentance and faith go together. What Judas is experiencing is remorse. He recognizes what he has done is wrong, but he doesn't repent. He doesn't have his faith in the Lord Jesus and confess his sins and expect and, and receive grace and, and love the Lord his God with all his heart, soul, mind, and strength. So you can be remorseful what you do for what you've done and go hang yourself and be desperate. This came out of a moment where Judas said, I got this. He was trying to walk in two worlds. And he just very clearly and blatantly and violently betrayed Christ and went against him. One commentator writes this, remorse is destructive. Repentance is creative. Repentance is beautiful. Repentance leads to life and to hope and to forgiveness. A lot of hard stuff in this text. I want to end with the gospel. The gospel is available. Repentance is available. Faith in Jesus who is eager and waiting to love you and forgive you is ready to receive repentance and restore you to fellowship. You must choose him and you must love him. And he needs to be supreme in your life. That was not the case for Saul in chapter 13 at least. We come right off of this chapter where the Spirit of God has Saul and he is doing great things for the Lord. And the power of the Spirit of the Lord is gone in chapter 13. But he is not gone from your life or my life if you are a believer. And if you have been convicted for something that you have done that you know is clearly wrong, Jesus wants to forgive you. 
not through remorse and depression and discouragement, but through repentance and faith, which brings life and creativity and joy. And on that note, let's bow our heads and ask God to help us to follow him. Father in heaven, you've given us your word, and your word is very clear about how we are to live, that it is never your will for us to cheat, to steal, to wound, to look down upon others, to, to make much of ourselves. Lord, the things that we need to know in your word are absolutely clear. Help us to have hearts inclined to follow your word. And in those situations where we have blown it and we have gone against your word, help us to repent, to experience joy and forgiveness and for our faith to increase. Free us from despair. Free us from, from feeling miserable but not having the joy of the Lord as our strength, which was the case for Judas, and free us from thinking, I got this, where we can solve some sort of problem in front of us, but by doing so, we betray the truths of your word. Keep us from that, God. We are so desperate for your grace and your work in our lives. We ask for your help. In Jesus' name, amen.